May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning again. Good morning. Um, We're just two weeks into uh, moving through the gospel of Mark. It's our second week. Uh, Thinking about maybe the most, quite possibly the most misunderstood command of Jesus, which is follow me. So, Throughout the the next several months, we're going to try to decipher what does Jesus mean by this commandment to follow him. Um, To kind of set the stage for today, and I I hope this this thing is going to work, I want to watch just about a minute of a music video by Sho Baraka, and he's an amazing hip-hop artist um, who is a follower of Jesus. And so he kind of gets at uh, the themes that we're going to be looking uh, looking at today, so Check this video out. What's your standard? Where you stand? What's your view? What gives you the right for you to think the way that you do? Is it school? Is it news? Is it man's wisdom? Is it religion? Why listen when you make your decisions? It's funny how some people, they see the law as some see him as a pacifist. Some see him with a sword. The Lord who hated sin showed grace to the thief. Saved a lowly prostitute for being stoned in the street. He was holy, but he hung with the sinful. Drove the wicked out by flipping over tables in the temple. He took a wrongful death, and yet he remained silent. But he said he coming back, and he is bringing violence. Many people isolate him just to make him fit their cause. Never to involve the greater context at all. So are the two Christ totally unrelated, or maybe it's one Christ, and he's pretty complicated, huh? Pretty complicated, huh? Uh, maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. Maybe both. So that went by pretty quick, so I'm going to read just a few of the lines. I wish I could rap, sorry. I can barely strum a guitar. Okay. Many people isolate him just to make him fit their cause, never too involved in a greater context at all. So are there two Christs totally unrelated, or maybe there's one Christ, and he's pretty complicated? Pretty complicated, or maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. And that's, that's what I've entitled my sermon today. It is both. Because for Jesus, he prioritized both his inner life of prayer with the Father, his relationship with the Father, and his outer life of loving others in word and deed. For Jesus, it is both. And if we want to follow him, we must do the same. We must prior, prioritize the inner and the outer life. So bearing that in mind, if you're able, I've asked Melody Uh, LaShawn to come and read the scripture for us today. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word from Mark uh, chapter 1. We're looking at verses 35 through 45. And I've got a microphone for you, unless you want to raise that one. Good morning, church, or family. (laughs) Our central text for today is found in Mark 1, 35 through 45. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were out, those who were there with him, searched for him. And they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out 
And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Melody. So we're going to first begin with taking a look at the inner life of Jesus the inner life. Verse 35 again, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. So in Mark's gospel, this is the second instance where we see Jesus praying. He prayed a lot, and depending on how you're wired, Um, your personality, your background. You either love this part about Jesus' ministry or you you tend to gloss over it. And perhaps this also services a question uh, in you as it did me. Why did the Son of God, why did the Son of God, God in the flesh, spend so much time praying? And another question came up as well. Couldn't he have gotten a lot more done for other people if he had skipped the praying part? You know, if he had a direct line to the Father, like, why have to steal away and go off? Couldn't he have gotten more done? You know, efficiency uh, is the way of the business world, right? We want to do things as efficiently as possible in our day and age, but it's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. And I, I want to recommend a fantastic resource to you. If you're looking to dig a little deeper into praying, Uh, The Praying Life is a book by Paul Miller, Uh, and he gives us three clues. He says the Bible gives us three clues as to why Jesus spent so much time in prayer. And the first clue he offers is to his identity. The reason why he prayed so often is because of who he was. Jesus said things like this all the time. The son can do nothing of his own accord. I only do what I see the father doing. And I and the Father are one. So he prayed because of who he was as a dependent son of God, dependent on his Father. Paul Miller says this, If you know that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then praying makes sense. So like Jesus, his followers pray as dependents, as sons and daughters of God. Second clue on why Jesus prioritized prayer in his ministry, it was his one-person focus, his one-person focus. And we see this in our passage today. So in the midst of this multitude of people, this throng of people um, coming up to him, a leper 
implores him, falls down at his feet. And Jesus, what does he do? He seems to almost forget the crowd. That would be really hard for me to do today. Like, if one of you came up here and you just had to really tell me something, but like, there's a crowd over here that's like, showed up for church, showed up for a sermon. But Jesus had this uncanny knack of making the one person the most important person in the room. And so, again, Paul Miller says this, the way he, he loves people is identical to the way he prays to his Father. In other words, we follow Jesus when we have this one-person focus in prayer and with our neighbors. Clue number three as to why he prayed so often was his limited humanity. His limited humanity. So Jesus, we believe as Christians that he was a fully divine person, but we also believe that he was fully human simultaneously. Complicated, right? Like Shobaraka said, he's complicated. Fully human, fully divine. But as a fully human person, he knows that there's no substitute for intentional and undistracted space with those he loves. Uh, let me ask the, the youth in the room. There's a few of you here. Um, I'm going to give you two options, and I want you to give me which option you would prefer, okay? If you, in this scenario, you really need to share something, something very important with a friend of yours. And scenario one, or option one, is your friend is going like this. This is option one. I really need to share with you. Okay, cool. Um, hold on. Option one, okay. Option two, undistracted, phone away. All right, which option would you take? Friends. Which one? Option A, B. Which one? All right, see me after church, prize awaits. Really good job, smart. Okay, so efficiency, multitasking, distracted hearts, what do they do? They crush relationships. They crush them. Many of you can, are, many of the wives in the room are like, yeah, I know, because my husband, like me, we can get so distracted by these things or by work or by what our to-do list. But if we really want to grow with those we love, we need spaces that we're not easily distracted in. We need to carve out time. We need to spend money, perhaps, to go on a date for those of you who are married, for un uninterrupted time. And you know, it's not a silver bullet, um, but with our time with Jesus, um, you know, there, there really is, again, no silver bullet because authentic relationships, there is no silver bullet, right? But Paul Miller, again, he says this, we can't create intimacy, but we can make space for it. We can't create it, but we can make space for it. So we follow Jesus when we take intentional steps to be alone with our Father, even if it's just for a few minutes today. And I want to um, recommend something to you that uh, has really been helpful for me. Again, no silver bullet, but it can be helpful uh, to journal your prayers. Some of you do that, and some of you don't. But I, I, again, it's, it's, there's no recipe for intimacy with the Father, but it can help me, at least with my mind, to be a little less distracted with him when I'm being intentional to write down my heart, to write it down on paper and say, this is how I'm really feeling, Father. 
or whatever I'm going through. So I just want to encourage you to make that intentional space. Why? Because we're limited. We get distracted. We need help. We need space. So it was his inner and outer life, this dynamic cyclical connection that we're going to explore, and his ministry to others led him to steal away to be with his father, and his time with the father, his time with the father moved him outward to love in word and deed, and this, again, dynamic sort of cyclical connection. So it's like this prayer and then ministry on repeat, prayer and ministry, prayer and ministry. That's Jesus. And we follow him when we do the same. In the New York Times, uh, there was this recent op-ed article that uh, Patrick referenced last week. And when I read it a few weeks ago, it just hit me like right between the eyes. And I wanted to share just a few sentences from it. But the title actually says it all. I think the title says it all. Want to change the world? First, be still. Want to change the world? First, be still. Let me read just a few sentences from this article. She writes, As one who tends toward activity and action, I'm often shocked when reading the Gospels by how much time Jesus spends not calling out injustice or touching lepers. When he spoke out against evil, he did so within a context of a life punctuated by long, intentional silences. Contemplative silence and prayer becomes the means by which we learn the limits of words and action and where we learn to take up the right words and actions. Did you catch that? These long, intentional, punctuated silences is what taught him and trained him to love and word and deed. Prayer doesn't make us still and passive, but like Jesus, we start with stillness. We don't stay still, but we start there with him. And we move outwards to love others. This is our rhythm because it was Jesus' rhythm. And that segues uh, into my second point, his outer life of preaching, deliverance, and healing, and how we can follow him there. So his outer life. Verse 38, And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. So, we all know that Jesus preached often. You know, the most famous sermon in world history, the Sermon on the Mount, um, is one of them. But uh, in the Gospels, we have about six or seven instances of his sermons, like what they actually were. But we, we, there are very many other uh, instances of him preaching, sharing with crowds. And we heard last week that the basic content of his sermons um, was to repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God was at hand. So repent, believe the gospel, kingdom of God at hand. The Sermon on the Mount and the parables that he taught were basically what it looks like to live inside his kingdom. Now, when you hear the word kingdom, what comes to mind? Knights, dragons for my little girls. They love dragons now. Uh, maybe horses. I don't know. Maybe like medieval times. Maybe that's just me. Um, but when Jesus said the word kingdom, what he meant is anywhere that the, the rule and reign of God is realized. The kingdom is any place where the rule and reign of God is realized. And so he came saying the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. 
The king is here. My rule and reign has begun. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear that in his kingdom, the poor are blessed and the merciful receive mercy. It's a place where enemies are loved and neighbors are treated the way that we would like to be treated. And Jesus came declaring that the rule and reign of God had come in him. And repentance, that turn that Patrick described last week, is turning from the kingdom of self, our skull-sized kingdoms, into living under the rule and reign of King Jesus. That's what repentance is. And in the Gospels, a variety of people declare the king in the kingdom. Not just Jesus. John the Baptist. In our passage, a cleansed leper. A healed demoniac. The disciples, even crowds, declare the king in the kingdom come. You know, we see this in our passage that the leopard shared about how the king had restored him completely. We're, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But he shared about how the king had restored him completely. And I think one of the mistakes we make is to not share the full news. The king and the kingdom. We can make that mistake. We can share just half the news. Or, of course, none of all, none at all. So one of the mistakes is that when we, we share basically that the kingdom without the king. The kingdom without the king is basically secularism. If you want to... What's the easiest way to define secularism? That's probably it. It's wanting, you know, a lot of modern sensibilities we would agree with, loving all people, caring for those who are victims of injustice. You know, Jesus cares about those things too. That's part of what it looks like to live in his kingdom. But Jesus alone will right all wrongs. Jesus alone wipes all tears in the end. So we need the king if we're going to flourish in his kingdom. It's actually impossible to fully experience justice and mercy and love and compassion that we all long for and that the world is crying out for without him. So we need, we need the kingdom and the king. Another mistake we make, sometimes in the church, is that we proclaim the king without the kingdom. And that's basically just religion. We love our personal time with God. We love Sunday worship. Sunday worship is good, by the way. Keep coming. It's important. But sometimes we can think that's all there is to following Jesus. Worship on Sundays, maybe read my Bible every now and then, but it doesn't really affect, he doesn't really have control over my life. That's religion. It's not the gospel. We follow Jesus when we share the kingdom and the king the kingdom and the king. Yes, he went up the mountain to pray, as it were, but then he came down to care for those in need. Do you? Do you go up to the mountain to pray, to be with God every day, to spend time with him, to make time, even if it's just a few minutes, to let him love you, to let him change you, transform you, convict you if necessary, comfort you, and then but here's the, another equally important question. Do you come back down to love your neighbors who need you to love them, who need you to be fair to them, who need you to speak words of life and peace and joy to give them hope and a future that's found in Jesus? Do you do that? Do you go up the mountain and come back down on repeat? 
That's what it means to follow him. The kingdom and the king is the gospel that we proclaim, that we share with our neighbors in word and deed. Remember, it's both. It is both. And in this passage, uh, we see Jesus not only preaching sermons, but we, we see him casting out demons. Um, I was driving around with my wife and kids yesterday, and we were going to DuPont, and on the way from our house, there was this really terrifying, uh, like, Halloween, like, you know, setup in their yard. And I'm not, I'm not joking. I thought it was a real grave digger, like, digging a grave. I, like, looked up, and I was like, ah! <laughs> you know? um, now you're awake, right? Um, and, you know, all these tombstones and, like, Wiccan, like, witches, like, and it was really scary, and I was just like, okay. So I think a lot of us, you know, as modern people, we can think that, like, demons and, and the devil were sort of invented to, like, sell candy or, or something like that, you know. But, you know, as 21st century modern people, we might say, come on, demons, the devil, Really? Uh, I heard a short story uh, recently um, that a group of secular elites were gathered to answer questions about sort of their worldview. Um, and they all shared this full-sale rejection um, of the supernatural. Or so they thought. Uh, and when the secularists were uh, questioned, and they were asked if they would allow a witch to cast a spell on them, they all said no. But you reject the supernatural, so why won't you let a witch cast a spell on you? No. We can't do that. We won't let that happen. They all knew what I think most of us, if not all of us, know deep down, which is that there are dark forces that we cannot explain empirically. Have you ever felt a sort of inexplicable heaviness in your life? Maybe it's tied to circumstances, but perhaps it's, it's not. Have you ever felt uh, a sort of unmitigated fear or shame or darkness in your life? There are forces at play in our world that are beyond what we can see with our natural senses. And Jesus came to do battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers that wage war against the kingdom of God. There's another kingdom. And Jesus came to do battle with this kingdom. And on the cross, he spelled its demise. And so Jesus casts out demons to show that he has ultimate authority, not the devil. The devil is a created being. But often we can give him too much credit. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has won. Victory is his. But we still wait. We await his coming again to put all things to rights and to make all crooked things straight. And so there's still a battle that's being waged. The war is over, but the battle rages on. And I just want to say there, there will be other sermons in this series that touch on demon possession, demonization, those kinds of things, but 
I want to say this again. Look, demons are real, okay? Like, hear me say that. Demons are real. We can over-intellectualize as Presbyterians. Forgive us for doing that. Forgive me for doing that as a pastor. But just hear me. Demons are real because the spiritual realm is real because there's a battle going on every day, and we can discount that. We can just explain it away. I was just having an off day. I was having an off week. I was having an off 10 years for some of you. You've been in such heaviness. And while, we don't, while these demons do not have authority over followers of Jesus, they can still impact us all in different ways. And if you sense that there is a darkness in your life that you just can't seem to shake, please speak with me or Patrick or one of the elders or one of the leaders here. We want to see you delivered. We want to see you healed of spiritual oppression if you're experiencing that. So we follow him when we believe that Jesus has power over the demonic and when we believe that the spiritual realm is as real as you and me. But we also follow him when we see that he heals physically and the socially oppressed as well. Look at verse 40. A leopard came to him, imploring him, and kneeling to him and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So many of you know that leprosy was a widespread disease in ancient Palestine. And in Leviticus 13 through 14, it describes sort of the, the code of conduct for those who, were, um, who, who had been diagnosed with this sort of this skin disease. Um, and there, was, there were all sorts of rules um, around it because, in essence, they were a threat to the holiness of God's people. And as a consequence, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, whenever other people were around. They had to keep their distance. They had to stand something like 50 paces away from anyone else. And so they were shunned. They had to also make their, their appearance as repugnant as possible to make it obvious that they were ceremonially unclean. And they had to live alone and outside the camp. So leprosy didn't just take, you, take your life, ultimately, physically speaking, it also took your life socially. And this is why the leper needed cleansing and not just healing from Jesus so he could be restored back to society if, God, if Jesus had granted and healed. And that was in accordance with Mosaic law. So the leper... What commentators bring out is that the leper risked everything, coming to fall at Jesus' feet, imploring him, pleading with him, please, please heal me. So he had the faith to know that Jesus could heal, but he did not presume it was his will to do so. He had faith enough to know he could, but he begged him that he would. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? One uh, New Testament scholar said this, you wouldn't expect an observant Jew to recoil from the leper's recklessness, but with Jesus, compassion replaces contempt. He had pity, it says, on this outsider. 
And that word uh, pity means to be moved to the core, to the bowels of who you are, the core of who you are with compassion. But um, some scholars think that the word pity was actually originally anger, not pity. The word in Greek is, are very similar. And so they think it could have been uh, uh, you know, some sort of uh, scribal error and that they unintentionally changed it to pity. But if it was original, anger was original, it means that Jesus was indignant, not at the leper himself, but at the misery and suffering of the leper. He was angry at how much this person had gone through. Just as he was in John 11 when he was angry, moved to tears and sorrow and lament when his friend Lazarus was dead. But either way you translate it, Jesus does not shrink back, but moves toward the person, the outsider, to cleanse him. And the fact that Jesus commanded him to go and see the priest is proof that he would, in fact, that his desire was to, in fact, reinstate him, reintroduce him back into society. The irony of this, the end of this passage, as we come to a close momentarily, is that this outsider, this leper, switched places with the ultimate insider, Jesus. So you may have caught it at the end that because of what the leopard shared with everyone, crowds were gathering to him, running to him, and he had to, he had to move to desolation. Jesus had to stay away from the crowds because there was, it was a mob. In other words, this is the beauty of Christianity, that the perfect king was treated like a leper to transfer us into the kingdom. And this is what Jesus does. This is who he is today. Before we move to the table, I, I want to just acknowledge an elephant in the room. Like the leper in the story, uh, I think many, many of you have fallen at Jesus' feet, begging him to heal your loved one. And like the leper, you believe that he is able to heal and you prayed, and you prayed, and you've prayed on end that he would be willing. But maybe unlike the leper, Jesus wasn't willing for reasons only he knows. And I just want to acknowledge, I just want to acknowledge that, um, Unanswered prayers uh, can, can really uh, have a huge impact on our faith. I just want to acknowledge that. That as I began with this morning, that you don't have to put on a religious face when you enter here. Jesus loves the real you, and if you are battling today for your faith, maybe it's just in sh tatters right now because of an unanswered prayer. We love you. And you belong here. And Jesus loves you. And this is what I want to say. And I want to say this carefully. Let me ask you, even though his ways are not our ways, 
And even though we don't understand why he does what he does sometimes, let me ask you, can you still trust a person who is willing to be ripped apart to save you? Can you? The one who made the stars promises to be with you throughout your journey through the valley of the shadow of death. And if you have to pray angry prayers for years on end, he can handle it and he will never turn his back on you. He promises to be with us to the very end of the age where he will finally right all wrongs and make all things new, even you, forever. And even though this does not make your pain go away, hear me out, this truth will not make your pain go away. Can it be a balm? Yes, but it cannot make it go away. If you're a follower of Jesus today, this is as painful as your eternity will ever be. This. What you're feeling today, what you've felt for months, years, some of you. This is as painful as life will ever be in eternity if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what we believe. Again, this hope will not bring back the one you lost. But in time, he will bind up your wounds. He will wipe all tears, friends. He will. And in the meantime, we want to carry these burdens with you. You are not alone in your pain. That's, that's the enemy wanting to tell you you are alone. He wants to isolate you in your pain. Don't carry this burden by yourself. We're here for you. We want to be here for you. And if you haven't already done so, please reach out to me or some of the other leaders. We want to love you in this, in this desert, in this valley. I just wanted to say that before we close. Jesus, what does this mean? Jesus is still praying, preaching, healing, delivering today. You know that Hebrews and Romans uh, both say that Jesus is ever living to make intercession for us. He's praying for you today. Jesus didn't just pray in the, in the, in the Bible. He pray, he's praying for you right now. He sees you. He knows you. And today he's bringing the gospel through, yes, a knucklehead like me, to you. He's preaching to you now. He wants you to hear he's with you. I'm with you. And today he's cleansing and delivering by his spirit, through his church, by his common grace. And this is why today we can follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is right. After a heavy word to be with you now. So we're just with you. Words fail for so many of us. There are situations in this room that would break the heart of anyone who hears. 
be near. Hear our cry. Hear our cry. Restore us, Lord. Restore the hearts of the broken in this room. And then send us out to be restorers for our neighbors, our friends, our family, our co-workers, our children, our siblings, our roommates. Restore us so we can restore. Forgive us so we can forgive. Cleanse us so we can mend and repair. Bind us up. Just take a few more seconds to be with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a joy to worship with you today. Uh, We hope to see you soon. And if you're new, we hope to see you uh, at our little newcomers uh, meet and greet right near the info desk, which is near the big doors uh, and the gallery. So we hope to see you there. Um, But before you go, receive uh, this good word. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What have you learned and received and heard and seen? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all together. Lord, stir us up and call us back. Kindle and seize us. Be our power and our sweetness. Let us love. Let us run. Amen. Go in peace.